So welcome to this special episode of the Privileged Man podcast, where we delve into the groundbreaking work of Nick Duffel, a renowned expert in the psychological impacts of boarding schools. With professional qualifications spanning systematic family therapy, psychosynthesis, psychoanalysis and somatic therapy, Nick has emerged as the trailblazer psychotherapist in understanding the experiences of numerous boarding school pupils. He has authored several influential books, such as The Making of Them, which was endorsed by the British Medical Journal, and Wounded Leaders. Both of these books challenge societal norms and perceptions surrounding the boarding school experience. Of course, for this alternative view, Nick is widely challenged and criticised by powerful institutions. His work is based on his findings from numerous boarding school attendees. And so I ask that however confronting you may find Nick's viewpoint, you look at it and you hear it with an open heart and mind. I don't think any of us who went to boarding school can call it a perfect experience. And as such, its consequences are worth exploring for us as individuals, for our families and for society as a whole. As ever, if listening to this podcast does trigger you, please do get in touch through the details on the website at theprivilegedman.com. Well, Nick, thank you so much for being on the Privileged Man podcast. Thank you for your time. No, thank you for asking me. That's a pleasure. I'm very excited about it. Just so to kick off and to give listeners a bit of background, could you explain a little bit about your journey in terms of your experience of boarding school? Okay, um, I'll give you the sort of short version with the big context. So I come from a family where my father was a working class boy from Hackney, made good, very aspirational, big achiever, went into the army as a private, came out a major. Very unusual. This is in the Second World War met my mother at an officer's wedding. So I come from this mixed class background. And my father was on a rising star after the war, working for various corporations. And we moved to Germany. He was working for Hoover. And I went to the army school. And after four terms, I would come back with a different accent every term. And the story has it that when I came back with a Geordie accent, my father, who was doing his level best to lose his cockney, said, that's enough. I'm sending him away to boarding school. <laughs> the firm were going to pay because there was loads of money there because they were hoovering up the Marshall Plan in Germany. And they could either send me to England or they send me to somewhere in Europe. So, and by great fortune, they sent me to a school in Switzerland which was full of U.S. Army personnel. So I went to an American school in Switzerland, a boarding school where we had kids from eight, and I was the youngest, to 21. The school was rather benign, and the regime was very lax, and we played in the woods. But then I was to go on in the English system, so I got sent to a prep school where from being in Levi's, which are very difficult to find in those days in England, I drove my mother crazy because it had to be Levi's. You know, fashion hadn't arrived for men. I'm talking 1957, 58 in Britain. Kids looked like they were 40, the minute they were 18, you know. So I was then sent back to England and to a prep school, which was kind of terribly Beatrix Potter and nobody knew the facts of life. And it was very, very odd to me. Because I'd kind of grown up a bit. I'd done my missing of the parents, but it was a fun school. And then I was sent to another public school after that, which was a very sort of muscular, upbeat, and 
quite brutal. And there, there was a sort of regime where you were told you were going to be leading the country, but you were also told at the same time you were a stupid boy and knew nothing. And you were the Sony rules so that you very easily got your bottom thrashed. And I found it quite bewildering. And I did like everybody else did. I had, you know, I got through it, survived. It wasn't until I was sort of, in my early 40s, when I'd had a couple of breakdowns, I had started to retrain as a psychotherapist and I was working, it was 1988, I remember, I was working in sort of men's work. We call it the men's movement then. And I realized that some of the things that we were doing didn't quite work for some of the men who had something in common and I was a bit like that too. And those were ex-boarders. So I started to think about it. And that's where it all started. Interesting. Really interesting. So I will get into more depth of what you discovered after that. But just to set the context, do you believe that boarding schools now with flexi boarding and weekly boarding and wellness departments, do you feel as though boarding schools are as perhaps damaging as you found them or found in your research in the 80s and 90s? Or do you feel that they've come on Well, I understand this question, Pete, but you have to remember that despite their privileged status under British law, that boarding schools are private businesses, which means they react to the market. Now, when I first went to boarding school, nobody cared about having a warm bathroom. We lived quite, you wouldn't, you wouldn't like it how we lived then. Yeah. But now you see that's different. So they've now got carpets and radiators. What haven't they got? They haven't got parents. They haven't got siblings, they haven't got pets, they haven't got old lady down the road, they haven't got aunties and uncles, they haven't got anything that makes growing up in a normal community, so they don't beat you anymore. But to be honest with you, I've spoken to hundreds and hundreds of exporters, and the beating wasn't the problem. You got through all that, okay. It's what the problem in boarding school is that you are detached from your parents, so so what we in psychology call your attachments were broken and deliberately broken. So you had to kind of reinvent yourself all by yourself as a little kid, say, as an eight-year-old, as in my case, but people went younger than that. But even as if you went at 13, you had to reinvent yourself without your parents in an institution full of rules that you didn't know and you could easily break, surrounded by a whole bunch of other kids who were on the lookout for the one who was going to be the vulnerable one because that they would stamp on. Because the main rule in the boarding school is, first thing is you can't, you're not allowed to show you miss your mum, dad. That's the first thing. And this becomes an invitation to cut off your whole emotional range. And if you cut it off that early, you can cut it off very, very, very well so you never get back again. And that is very, very, very damaging So when you talk about damage, I say the issue isn't damage. The issue is survival and how you have to survive and how you have to deal with what I call privileged abandonment and normalized neglect. And the thing about normalized neglect is that's the context in which bullying and abuse is going to occur because you can't stop it even with the safeguarding officer they have, even with the school counsellor, 
even with the Ofsted visits, you can't in institutions where neglect is normalized, stop bullying and abuse. It's not possible. And uh, so it's those things that actually every child has to go through. Sure, I was going to ask you that. So each person, in, in your opinion and your experience, that has been to boarding a school and um, may say, well, it didn't do me any damage. I've had a pretty yeah. good life. I was bloody lucky to go there. Yeah. You would still say that underneath that, if they looked under the hood, that there would be elements of this disassociation. Well, well, I would say that, but I wouldn't, I'll tell you what I wouldn't do, I wouldn't tackle head on someone who says it was the making of me, it was the best thing in my life, without any invitation. Because they know what will happen, because they'll become very, very defensive. Because if I were to say to them what I usually say, well, you had to survive. And actually, when you survive, you paid cost. And in fact, when you're an adult, when you're still surviving with the survival personality you designed when you're eight years old, those around you who are trying to love you pay a cost. And even if you think it was the best thing for you, you still had to survive because everybody does, and you're still paying that cost, even if you haven't identified it. And you've actually, in your work, have written about this in, t- in terms of the strategic survival personalities. Yeah, Do you, could right. you talk the listeners through? You can ply the rebel and the crushed. Is yeah, that right? good. Oh, it's done his homework. <laughs> yeah. I've, well, oh, I'm excited. Very good. Yeah, you see, I got the notion of survival basically from the very early work that was being done on sexual abuse in the 80s, because there was a lot of sexual abuse about, and us therapists who went through our training then had to deal with a lot of it before it was, this is all a long time before Savile, before the, just say that the, the wider community knew about it. And one of the things that was being done in that work, and I thought it was very, very skillfully done, is that survivors of abuse were asked to see they had been victims, but they'd also had survived it. And they'd had to take on various survival strategies because it's such an invasion. And that those strategies that they'd taken on, they're liable to run a sort of outdated survival personality way past its sell-by date. And I saw that's exactly the case with boarding school survivors, even though the problem mostly, as I said to you just now, is mostly extreme neglect rather than abuse. But of course, you can have them both together. So I really took on that idea. I remember I was sitting with this guy once when I was starting working before I'd done the workshops, but seeing ex-boarders who just happened to come into my practice. And the man said to me, I was strategic. I became strategic. And he was thinking about, because there's so many rules in boarding schools, and if you can remember, it's like the school I eventually got to. So you couldn't have your jacket buttons undone until you're in the sixth form. Or you couldn't walk along this path. Or, you know, they were just these insane self-referring rules. And I'd come from that American school, and I thought, what's going on? Well, that was my whole bewilderment all the time. So he's, yeah, strategic, he said. And I thought, that's, he's really got it. Because what I knew was that what happened in when ex-boarders were living their adult lives and they were in the difficult situations, which actually is intimate life, family life, being a husband, partner, father. Yeah. They would very often react. Let's say wife calls out their name and the reaction would be, what have I done? Uh Uh-oh, I'm in trouble. 
and the strategic sort of hyper alert thing sort of kicks into place automatically. And so then the exporter goes into that situation, which actually could be an invitation for something intimate or loving, already defended. So then I thought, so yeah, this is what the borders have. They've got this instant, they're running a lot of anxiety, which is unconscious, because you can't go through institutional life, which is you know, so rule-bound and stuff and, and on your own without being anxious about it. But it's now unconscious. It's like seamless, not noticed. At the same time, because of the training, because of the boarding school training, you learn to talk the talk. You learn to be quite confident. Or most of us do. Yeah, not all. But most of us learn to be quite confident, cool talk to anyone. But underneath, there's a lot of anxiety. Yeah. Am I going to get into trouble? Yeah, I understand. You know what I mean? Absolutely. Yeah. So I saw that the strategic survival personality started to run people's lives so that they couldn't really basically engage in the intimate situation. Plus, having learned to disown the feelings of homesickness and missing mummy and stuff like that, the emotional intelligence, as they say today, is quite low. So you've got both these handicaps. So I realized that that makes a terrible training for intimate family life. But also, as I talk more in my second book, Wounded Leaders, for political leadership. It's very, very bad. Where actually, it's all about making relationships and making decisions on under stress. Yes, it's really interesting. So uh, the one particular strategic survival personality, the complier, and a few of my notes I've got here around and what compliers do is one is that they'll say that it never did them any harm, boarding school. They'll also thrive in institutions. They'll also not seek therapy until something goes really wrong. They'll be the main defenders of the status quo. They'll build reservoir of emotions until they really need to burst. You see, these survival personality types, the three types that you mentioned, it was about my having a crack at trying to understand it. So this is not precise science at this point. But if you think the easiest way to get along with a regime that's very, very powerful and often quite brutal, which the whole boarding school system is, you see. And in my work, I don't really bother with individual schools. I'm not bothered with that, you know. Okay, so there was one school had a reputation for more brutality than the other. No, it was just the whole system detached from parents in institution, brought up to be gentlemen to run the country. Yeah. The same kind of training. You get very similar results. In fact, it's a very clear socialization experiment in a closed group with very similar symptoms. So the wisest thing to do is to go along with it and keep your head down, get on with it. And you happen to be good at rugby or cricket or something like that. That was you. Yeah. Cricket and hockey then you could have an easier time than some others. Yeah. Very true. And and so you can actually go through the school, feel it, it was okay, go to reunions and things like that, but you support a conservative view of life generally because you don't want to upset the apple cart. So if someone tells you you're a survivor, you actually will become quite hostile at that point because that's very threatening. And you can also, I mean, you're not necessarily have to be hostile. You, you can develop one of the l- very loved sort of British character styles, sort of quite self-effacing, a bit like uh, Hugh Grant or something like that, you know, 
and that's a very acceptable kind of style. And actually, those people achieved quite a lot of brilliant, and they were terrific in the diplomatic service because they knew how to do stuff. They knew the in rules and the out rules. But actually, when you talk to a large selection of wives and things from those kind of complier survivors, the wives end up being lonely, end up feeling like the lonely little boy that they were actually not in touch with anymore. And hey, presto, in psychoanalysis, they say, well, that's what happens. If you disown something, you end up projecting it out onto somebody else. And the easiest way to project it out to somebody else, have somebody really close with you who could look like all the things you don't want to be, vulnerable, incompetent, a bit messy, stuff like that. So a lot of those guys actually marry women like that. Interesting. And it's very scary for women because they think they're going crazy. Or, and then they read the website and they write huge, great letters to our administrators saying, oh my God, I've suddenly seen the light. And then they try to get their husbands into therapy. So that's the next big job. Well, I mean, a lot of what you just said there explains you know, why I think a lot of ex-boarders, ex-private school guys that I know struggle for intimacy within their relationships. I get a lot of direct messages from wives, girlfriends going, how can I get my husband into this work? My husband's emotionally left the building. And my question to them many times is, was he ever in the building? Or is it just now that you're coming to a point where maybe they've just had a few kids and the spiritual essence for a woman of having children is definitely a deeper road than it is initially for men. Well, yeah, I mean, that's quite a common sort of midlife sort of crisis stroke turning point in in many people's lives. But I I come back to a couple of things you you said. They did some studies in the 90s in terms of males in relationships and male violence. And the interesting interviewing wives and partners, and one of the interesting things and scary things they said is that the partners of males who withdraw feel that they're in violent relationships, that they experience, because women are generally, whatever postmodern says about gender, women operate in a relational mode much more easily. It feels actually very, very hard for them. And so the male doesn't know what what they're talking about because he spent his whole formative years being alone in a group. And you can do that very well. You learn to do it very well. It's terribly easy. My wife used to say to me, she used to say, you have a big party, you get a load of people in, and then you just disappear. And and it was right. You know, I saw it. I I did used to do that. So the thing about not being necessarily alone, but being lonely in the thought. Because it's just like, well, what do I have to say here? I can't actually say what I really feel. And then there's the sort of the overwhelm. This is how I experienced it. Yeah. The overwhelm of that amount of people around me or the energy was just too much. And for a lot of the time, that made me too anxious to be even in a room. Well, yeah, well, most of us don't know that we have to learn and relearn right from the beginning a whole business about emotions. And we have to, I, I realized I had to teach myself empathy. I really had to learn it. And I only, in the end, really had sort of five years of the heavy uh, British boarding school type. But so when you think about leaders and politicians who mostly come from 
top English public schools where actually they've had to forsake all vulnerability in themselves. How the hell are they going to understand the vulnerable in society? It's just, they just don't do it. I mean, you could see it. You could see it with Boris. He just couldn't get it. And he was making things up as he went along. So easy to see. But for those of us who are not going to be these these leaders, but are going to be in families, we have to realize we have to learn it from scratch. And that we have to acknowledge the problems in us. Yeah, we may have wives who are unhappy and frustrated, but to a large extent, the absent man in a relationship is kind of brings in a level of, in quotes, violence, and women go crazy. Now, should we talk about the other boarding school type? The rebel's the most difficult one to work with, I was, I say, to therapists. I was a kind of not a very brave rebel at school, but and then I managed to get to Oxford, which was not my choice, because in those days, teenagers didn't have a choice. I wanted to go to art school. But my housemaster and my father wanted to send me to Oxford, took me two cracks on the exams. And after Oxford, I switched courses. I was going to do PPE, and I did a bit of economics there, and I thought, this is unfair. I want to do something else. So that's why I ended up in India, because I did Oriental languages. I kind of wanted a career to study something that wouldn't give me a career. I mean, that's how perverse the the rebel border is. Also, I'm talking, this was late 60s, you know, so it was a different universe then. You kind of could do it. So after Oxford, I was a carpenter for 15 years. And I met quite a lot of carpenters and plasterers and people in the building trade. <laughs> and we got lots of work because people trusted us, uh, but we never made much money. And we smoked a lot of dough. And we broke up a lot of relationships, stuff like that. And then it all started to tumble down. I was in mid Wales and I moved to London and I, I started going into therapy. And it was still another good 10 years before I realized the boarding school had anything to do with it. And of course, the problem with the rebel is when it comes to treatment is that the rebel always makes friends with the therapist or something like that. Has been the done every kind of course going that Fintorn has to offer, and is very anti-establishment because he thinks the problem's all in the establishment. Now it's not wrong the problems in the establishment, but in order to heal from being a boarding school survivor, you've got to know that it's you designed the survival personality that got you through, and that was the solution then. But that's now the problem. Survival person solution then problem now. You've got to sort your own survival personality. The rebel border doesn't want to know that. The rebel border still wants to go on marches, still enter the authority, expects extinction rebellions absolutely packed with them. And it's very difficult because the rebel border also tends in general to be very bad at self-care. I can remember I never used to make my bed, you know, wouldn't make my bed. So it took me years later to realize I was waiting for a mummy to come and make bed for me, so that could be one of the women in my life who I'd want to be the mummy to make bed. The downside was I always slept in a bloody awful bed. I couldn't make the effort to make it right for me. So there are lots of issues like that where poor self-care and actually quite a masochistic turn of frame, so in other words, a way of seizing defeat out of the jaws of victory 
that the rebel can do because in the end, authority is an internal issue. And if you're always against authorities outside, you tend to disown your own authority. So you tend to not live your potential. Interesting. I see quite a lot of myself there. Well, you can be bits of everyone, you know. You can have bits of everyone. Yeah, I definitely was a comply up until the age of probably 28, 29, and then full rebel kicked in. You know, having moved to Hong Kong and then moved to Indonesia and then full rebel kicked in. Yeah, I thought you lived in Bali. Did, I did for eight years. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then, um, yeah, we moved back when I met my wife in 2019. Spent a bit of time during COVID to and from, but no, we now live on the Isle of Wight. Yeah, Yeah. (laughs) as you do. (laughs) So then there's a crush. Then there's a crush, yeah. Yeah. Now. For some kids, boarding is an absolute disaster. And you could say kids, most of us, were reasonably well attached before we went away to school. However, there's a transgenerational problem with boarding, which means that over generations, British families haven't been good with children. They haven't quite known. You know, British families tend to be what in psychology you call cool families, unlike, say, Jewish families or Turkish families tend to be hot families or Italian families. I think it's one of the reasons we all like going to Southern Europe, not just the sun, but we see the way children are and the families are, you know, the big family life. We don't, you know, we don't do it. And really, Protestant countries not quite as good as that. And British have got this couple of hundred years of this bringing up children with nanny if you're upper classes or boarding school for the middle classes. So let's say there's a child who's not very well attached. So he his own sort of internal sense of security is quite low. So then he goes into a boarding school situation where you've got to be really quick on the draw to come up with a workable survival personality that's going to work. With the other kids, not it's not the teachers. So the other kids are the real problem. Let's say a kid like this comes up with something naff, or looks wrong, or has a funny name or something. He's going to get bullied from the beginning, and that, in the end, can really do you in. And or, I mean, I think one of the major things where I got this from there was a kid in my public school who was just terribly beautiful. And he was 15, he killed himself because he drew a lot of attention from the other boys. And the pretty boys were called tarts, you know? You know, it's horrible. I do know. And I also have that experience of a friend of mine who actually really sort of changed the course of my life in 2014 and really known mm. and been friends with someone who had taken that, taken. What was his name? I called Ben McLeod. Ben, yeah, my, my friend was Chris. I never forget his name. Never forget. I never forget him. Never forget. You know, he was a beautiful man. Yeah, and had a beautiful heart. Yeah, but it was. It was. He had literally had been crushed. He was Australian. Went to school in Melbourne. Yeah, and um, that definitely changed my. It gave me more empathy. When you talk about empathy, and I had to really learn to to sort of feel more about how men were actually feeling. So that's actually at the start of my journey. Making sure that I said, are you feeling okay? Uh, how are you feeling? I never used to say that. I was like, you're okay, mate. You're right. You're right. You know, how, how we do. Yeah. yeah sure. Surviving. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Good. 
okay, it's not really an answer. It's like, mm-hmm. how, how are you feeling? And then make sure that I ask people well, that. You lose the ability to answer such questions. Mm. Yes. And it's interesting you say that because when I do say, how are you feeling? Or I write a message and I go, how are you feeling? I can feel that to many people that's very confronting. It's like, how often do you actually get asked, how are you feeling? It's normally just, a, it's normally an introductory, mm. more of a, how do you do? How are you doing, mate? You know, we used to say, how, how do you do? How do you do? Rather now it's the right, right. But yeah, I'm, I'm, I know I put people's backs up, but I'm more interested in having that more in-depth interaction yeah. than I am in a, on a sort of superficial. I mean, just moving on, you, you said, um, you talked about, thank, and thank you for explaining that. I think it's um, a lot of the listeners will be able to see themselves in those three strategic personalities. And if you do, actually, if you did see yourself, you know, if, if, if one of the listeners is saying, well, actually, I do see myself in that, what, what's the first step? Well, the first step is exactly that, what you say. You want the light bulb to go up and you want to be able to say, oh my God, I'm a boarding school survivor. We call that a recognition stage. That's the start of it. Then I would advise, read everything you can on the subject, but get yourself into one of our workshops. Certainly read my original book, which I wrote in the 90s, came out in 2020, The Making of Them where I'm quite sort of tentative about it all. In Wounded Leaders, I, I kind of go more full at it. And there's another book called Trauma, Abandonment and Privilege, which is more for therapists. But best thing is, is to do one of our workshops. We do it over two weekends. And the first weekend, really, you get a chance to really tell your story, which, and sometimes they're very moving things that stories haven't been told or heard, you know, for 20, 30, 40, 50, 60 year, years. Yeah. Men from in their 30s to men in their 70s in these things. And the second weekend, we mostly focus on actually how can you sort of deconstruct a strategic survival personality. And that's where you start to move into the next stage of our sort of recipe for recovery, which you call it, call it the RAC model. You know, you need a bit of a breakdown first. You need to recognize, then you need to accept it. And you need to accept that actually you did your best at time, but you also really need to accept that your survival personality is now not working for you in the way it should do, and probably hurting other people in the process. And you have to take responsibility for and in change, well, comes after that. One of the things is that we get people to see is, can you actually see how the, the survival personality you invented at six, seven, eight, nine, whatever, is still trying to run your life? You're trying to manage your work life, your intimate life like this. And we say to people, it's like, your life is very powerful. You know, your life is like an 800 series BMW. And, you, and a little boy of eight would love to drive it. She'd be absolutely nuts to give him the keys to it. It's too much. And yet, we've given the keys to this very powerful thing to the eight-year-old. It's just bonkers. Thank you for explaining that. Talking of that eight-year-old, quite clear that men I talked to who went to boarding school at seven or eight had a profoundly different experience in life compared to those who went later on. 
in your research and experience, what difference do you see in those who started boarding at seven compared to 10, compared to 13, or even compared to 16? Well, I think the earlier you are, you went away, it's more likely that your dissociation of your emotions is strongest because just doing it for a long time. And the more likely there's, there's more anxiety running underneath than you realize. So you could say the younger you go, the worse it is. However, starting at public school, say at 13, you might be joining a group, let's say you haven't been, you start at 13, who have got very, very skillful at bullying by that stage. So some of the excesses of bullying that happens in the, the sort of first few years of public school is, is quite hair curling, some of the things like that. So kids can be very vicious. The other thing is, you're going through the major developmental stages. So in, in order to really get any good at this work, I had to go away and train in developmental psychology, which isn't really done in Britain. So I had to do it in Holland. And actually, what you realize is going through puberty in an institution can be really, really damaging and, and really sort of spike your sexual life or your sexual, I don't dare say identity these days, your, your sexual self-concept for life. Because actually, you need your parents. At those age, parents don't just have to be around like when you're seven. They actually have to be doing something. Parents have to do some parenting. It's actually a really bad idea to devolve or delegate parenting of children in puberty. We don't even have a word for children in puberty, whereas other European languages do, for example. And that if you're going to ha- you know, going to do any schooling away from your parents, the only time it really would makes any sense is a sort of sixth form time. If it were me, I would I'd ban boarding until 16. Just then send a lot more kids away at 16 and make it a bit more democratic. And that's about the age. You're just about getting ready for getting away from your parents for a bit. Parents are relieved to get the little buggers out of the house at this stage too. But parenting is difficult. It's really difficult. If parents can be persuaded that they can both have something beloved of the British called parental choice. They can be persuaded that, that sending their children away to boarding schools, parental choice, and it's the best thing for them because you've got the, the national situation here. We've talked a bit about money, but we haven't talked about education. But because you've got this so-called independent sector, the state sector is consequently a sort of Cinderella system. And you don't get that in Germany, for example. Germany. You're a state school teacher. It's a big status job. Here it isn't unless you're a head of department or head teacher. And so the impetus is still on for the parents to do this. Yes, very much so. And I see this in a lot of the men that I'm speaking to because they've got, they may have reached their 40s. They've got some young kids. They've, they're in the height of their careers, but they're also in the height of their expenses dilemma. And I talk to them about, and so I'll give you an example. I put on LinkedIn what's more important to send your child to private school or parenting. So 65 people replied, 63 of them said parenting. Two of them said sending my kid to private school. So that's interesting in itself. What is 
interesting if I followed up with them all individually about how much they spend on themselves to increase their awareness, to increase their personal growth, which I didn't, but because I knew quite a few of them, I was taking a guess about how much they would in comparison to how much they are spending on getting their kids through private school. It didn't add up at all. So, I mean, two kids coming through a big boarding school, for example, a, bi- a big one, which costs, say, you know, now nearing 55, 60,000 a year, if we add all up everything. That's something around 350 pounds a day, just a day is that going out of the account. But yet when it comes to there and what you were talking about earlier within one of the strategic personalities, I think it was the rebel, which doesn't have so much yeah. self-care. Spending even £60 to go and have a massage, I can't do that. It's too expensive. So what I'm trying to pull awareness to is it's huge cultural push that this is what you have to do. And in 2023, that is very, very different compared to when I went to school in the 90s. It's, It's now a global market, isn't it? Go to these schools. Anyone from anywhere, if you've got the money, can come to these schools. Yeah. Whereas in the 90s, that was, you'd have some expat parents sending their kids to school in the UK and then back in the 60s, but, yeah. you know, maybe the odd person came from abroad. But it's become so hugely expensive now. But yet the, that there is an awareness that parenthood is and the way in which we parent is very important and it's very alive on social yeah. media. Becoming an aware mum, becoming yeah, a dad yeah, who's yeah. it. So there's this awareness, but yet there's this hard wireness that at all costs we will send, and literally yeah. at all costs, to relationships, to our own personal health. Well, also to the nation, you see, that's, that's the thing that for me has to come in here because there's, the survival has a cost which uh, runs for the survivor himself, the survivor's family, but I think as the nation as a whole. Because Britain hasn't managed to put up, create a good social democracy like Holland, Denmark, Germany or something. But you see, I would say parenting is bloody difficult, but God, is it a learning curve. You really learn to, you know, push your edges as a parent. You know, setting boundaries and loving at the same time, for example. God, that's difficult. But then the other thing is, you know, what we need badly is we need articulate parents sitting on the PTAs of local schools getting the local schools better. Not just seeing how they can move into a better catchment area so they could be, you know, at the posture school or whatever, which is what's happening. Or how can they afford, what sacrifices can they do to send their kid away again? And it's an investment in the future because we keep investing in these attachment breaking, even if it's kind of a bit less with these three weekly boarding, but it still creates that culture of cold families not used to good attachments. And I think we could turn it around in a couple of generations if we really made up our mind to. Yeah. I I read this thing the other day, which was saying that for the man or for the woman who breaks the trauma within their family called generational healers. And I like that term. It's like the, it's, it's, uh, I'm not going to let the, the trauma that yeah. my parents had, my grandparents had, and their great grandparents had come onto my children. But that takes a huge amount of investment and commitment yeah. 
and the ability to actually say, no, this isn't right. The way in which I grew up wasn't right. And it takes a lot of guts, a lot of courage. Well, it does, but but it's good. You know, if you've started the recognition stage and you're sitting around wondering what the hell your parents were thinking about sending you to school, I mean, save your mental energy because they weren't thinking at all. They were just doing what everyone else did. And if you're waiting to have the big talk and the big apology from them, forget it. Uh, it's, there's so few cases it works. Think about what your father couldn't really do in his life and try to do it better. And I mean, on a sort of emotional intelligence level. And there's your task. That's big enough. Absolutely. There's one guy in our community who says, you know, I'm trying to just be 20% better than my dad. Yeah. That's you good. <laughs> and, you know, it's no, but there's no blame in there. There's no sort of victimness. It's just like, you know, this is what I, you know, if my son can be 20% better and, mm. you know, as you say, that aggregate to making a, a better community and a better society as a whole. So with that, just in terms of what I do and with the privileged man and what yeah. you've spent a lot of time doing, I just want to quickly get your view on men's circles and the importance of them and sort of what you've seen them do for bo- for what you term as boarding school survivors? Uh, yeah, well, uh, men's groups, we used to call them. Circles is the word now. Robert Bly once said something that I thought was great, and he said, don't say, share anything with a woman you haven't shared with another man first. Mm. And that's quite interesting and quite dense. And I think what it means is in a men's group or a men's circle, you can learn to practice emotional connection and empathy and expression, all sorts of things you may not be good at. And then you can make mistakes in those groups, especially if they're facilitated, which is, I always think is better than, than self-run. You can make mistakes there and it's not going to be a disaster. You can try again and you can learn then to deal with, uh, the emotions of your partner, especially if she's a woman, and be able to receive them without actually going into fear or panic or anger or running. And so that's very, very good. And the other thing is that you, you might be, say, one of these rebel boarding school survivors, and you've, you've heard that emotions are good, and you kind of make your wife into your confessor. Don't do it. It's not her job. Women are naturally sort of geared to be your therapist and they need help to get out of that because it's a trap for them. Brilliant. That was absolutely <laughs> brilliant. Yeah, I read that the other day. Your wife is not your therapist. Or she'll easily become one, but try, try to make her out of a job. That's my advice. And do it, do it yourself. Yeah. Yeah, so in episode one, I spoke to Max Dickens and he was talking about how he you know, you go to a modern day wedding and everyone goes, you know, the, the speeches are, well, you know, I've married my best friend yeah. and, and everyone goes, oh, that's cute, isn't it? Yeah. But actually that's where we've got to is that men haven't necessarily got that basis of, of real male no, friendships. That's right. that's right. And we will allow pouring everything. Yeah, no, that's right. I agree with you. Yeah. Onto yeah. expecting our wives to be our best friends, our wives, yeah. our lovers. Yeah. You- yeah. And, it's, and, you know, the intimacy that gets sucked out when there yeah. are therapists. Yeah, I mean, you could say the traditional, the best man at the wedding originally was a man with whom you can share your heart, not the guy who's going to buy you numerous drinks and then tell embarrassing stories about you at the wedding. <laughs> that's, that's what it's ended up as. 
Yeah, that's really beautifully put. So to wrap things up, I ask this question. If you were to magically be at the top of political power right now and you could give one prescription for for society about how we're going to get a get a world according to Nick Duffel, what would it be? I would certainly in Britain, I would make sure we had an education system we could be proud of for the whole country. So I would get rid of boarding until the 16 year olds. I would make it much more democratic. I would make sure that being a teacher in school was something you could do that made sure you were safe and you had a good status and a good pay. And I would uh, bring emotional literacy onto the curriculum. There's plenty of things you can get rid of because everybody's working too hard these days anyway, but make sure that we bring the whole nation up to some kind of emotional literacy. So we develop empathy as a natural thing and that we realize actually we may have to put some effort into it. I think there's lots you could do that we can make a much more healthy society starting in the educational area. Thank you. Thank you for your time, Nick. So thank you for joining me, Pete Hunt, on the Privileged Man podcast. If you're interested in joining our exclusive community for men, please visit the website, theprivilegedman.com, for more details.